Welcome back to another episode of Northeastern Next, a showcase for the stories, talents, and thoughtful insights of our university's current and future alumni. I'm your host, Caitlin, a current DMR McKim graduate student. Today, I'm here with Donna Halper. Donna attended Northeastern for her undergraduate degree from 1964 through 1969, and then went on to receive two master's degrees from Northeastern. In 1968, she became the first female DJ in the history of Northeastern's radio station. Donna has worked as a radio broadcaster, music director, and DJ in Boston, Cleveland, New York City, and Washington, D.C., She's also hosted a public affairs program focused on prison reform back when those were a mandatory part of your license. Donna is credited with discovering the band Rush, who actually dedicated their first two albums to Donna. Donna is also a media historian, author, and is currently a communications and media studies professor. Quite the resume. Welcome, Donna. Hey, come on. Just trying to stay busy. You know what I mean? Trying to put my Northeastern education to good use. Sounds like it has been over the years. Absolutely. So I'm sure that Northeastern in the 60s and 70s looked quite different than it does today. Can you please tell me a little bit about your experiences at Northeastern, both in the classroom and at the radio station? Like you said, Northeastern is very different today. But I was growing up at a time when society was just on the verge of changing, but it kind of hadn't yet. Like when I started at Northeastern, guys were supposed to wear jackets and ties to school and women were supposed to wear dresses. Hello. Can you imagine that today? Uh, not only that, but everything was really gendered. Like I wanted to be a sportscaster. I've always loved baseball. I was told girls couldn't do that. Okay. So I wanted to work for the Northeastern News, which was the newspaper back then. And I was told that girls couldn't do that. I mean, yes, I could work there, but only in certain departments that were considered feminine. I do not know from feminine. And there I was getting told that like girls couldn't do this and girls couldn't do that. And that was surprising to me. Okay. Um, I was in Northeastern at a time when it was mainly an engineering school. The big deal for Northeastern was its school of engineering. It had a school of education. It had a school that trained, you know, dental hygienists and stuff like that. But really, the big emphasis was on the guys who were engineers. There may have been a female engineer somewhere, but I never saw one. It was mostly guys. That having been said, Northeastern had a radio station. And I'd been in love with radio since I was a kid. And I really wanted to be on the radio. And I went up to the station, WNEU, Northeastern University. This is before it became WRBB. And I must tell you, I was there when it became WRBB. And I was one of the people responsible for getting those new call letters. So I go up to WNEU and I'm like, you know, I'm ready to be on the radio. You know, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up, you know. And they tell me I can't be on the radio. And I'm like, why not? And they said, well, you're a girl. And I'm like, and your point is? And they said, we don't have girls on the air. And I said, why not? And they said, they don't sound good. 
And I said, well, how many of you had on the air? And they said, none, they don't sound good, which struck me as a catch 22. So what they did let me do was they let me segue records, okay, play records back to back, but I couldn't talk. And I remember one of the first records I ever played was The Kinks, Tired of Waiting for You. Couldn't be more appropriate, don't you think? And I ended up doing some voices for a couple of people's shows because I was pretty good at doing voices. But again, they wouldn't let me on the air. And I had to embark on a four-year battle before finally, in my senior year, society was changing, WNEU was changing. I showed up. And this time they said yes. But I got to tell you guys, it was the most depressing four years of my life being told that just because I was in a female body, I could not do X, Y, or Z. Not because I wasn't qualified, but just because I was female. And here I am at a college. And yet these were very conservative times. We have this myth and you'll hear about it from people that weren't there, said, oh, yeah, it was a real hippie period. No, it wasn't. It was just transitioning from very conservative to somewhat moderate to, yeah, some of the students in some parts of the country were really, really getting outraged. They weren't getting outraged so much about sexism as they were about racism and about the Vietnam War. There was a group of us, second wave feminists, that's not what we were called back then, but later on when the third wave came along, we were like, oh, you guys were the second wave. I'm like, okay. Um, so those of us that were in the women's movement in the 1960s, we were mocked, we were insulted, we were called all kinds of names, even the media, which were mostly guy reporters. Well, yeah, but what do women want? It was the Sigmund Freud for you. But what do women want? Equal pay would be nice. Equal opportunities, hello? But finally, society started to change and Northeastern began reflecting some of those changes too. And we start seeing this at the radio station, at the Northeastern News, where again, there had always been female reporters, but in, for the most part, very gendered roles. So we start seeing everything change at campus media. Today, we take those changes for granted. Back then, your humble servant was the first. And when you're the first, let us be honest. There are people that want you there. There are people that don't. And I remember very clearly people kind of hanging around my studio, hoping I'd make a mistake so that they could then say, see, women don't belong on the air. I did not make a mistake. I did a pretty good radio show, I must say. And I always joke that somehow the Republic did not fall just because I was on the radio. In fact, it turned out to be pretty positive. And after me came the first Black announcer and et cetera, and et cetera, and all kinds of social change. At the time, I didn't realize I was going to be a pioneer or that I was going to be part of. I wasn't trying to change something. I was just trying to play the hits. I was just trying to entertain people. And I couldn't understand why I couldn't be on the radio. And Northeastern University, as difficult as it was to get on the air, being at WNEU changed my life because I became a music director. I became somebody that was known for playing imports, which were records from other countries. 
I made friends with a lot of the record promoters, and all of those things would stand me in good stead later on. But at the time, I was just gratified that I could do the thing that I wanted to do more than anything, which was beyond the radio. Well, that is so awesome. I'm so glad you were able to get into the radio. And thank you for being such a trailblazer at Northeastern and quite the accomplishment. The fact that you were able to do so much with it once you were at the radio station that really propelled you for your future career and careers with all, you know, all everything that you're doing today. So I know that you are credited with discovering the rock band Rush. Super incredible. How did that all come about and what did your experiences look like kind of after you left Northeastern and between that time of discovering Rush? To be honest with you, how I remember it was I spent about a year and a half, probably the happiest year and a half of my life, uh, being on the radio at WNEU and then WRBB. After I graduated, I figured, hey, you know, I've got this great experience. Surely someone will hire me. Sadly, no. The industry hadn't changed yet. It was starting to, but it really hadn't. I ended up teaching in the Boston public schools. And while I had been living at home and commuting as an undergrad, you know, basically a working class kid, first female in my family to go to college at a time when that still was kind of unusual. And you know, the culture, the pressure in the culture was like, you know, girls should just get married and have kids. So I always knew that teaching would be fine with me, but it wasn't where my heart was. It was something that females were expected to do. It was either teacher, nurse, or secretary. Nothing wrong with those occupations, not where my heart was. My heart was in radio and I knew it, okay? So while I was teaching in the Boston public schools, I did a lot of freelancing because no one would hire me full time. So I answered the telephone at WRKO, which was a top 40 station. I was a hit line operator, which is what girls could be back then. But that was actually kind of fun because I got to work with the DJs and help them to get information about the songs and so on and so on. But no one hired me. And then I landed a freelance gig working for ABC Radio doing a history of rock and roll called Retro Rock that aired on the ABC radio network, which was kind of cool, but they wouldn't give the female writers credit. It had to be the men who were voicing it that got the credit. But once a year, they did give us credit. So at least there's that. Plus, I still have my scripts. Thank you very much. So I can prove that I wrote those shows. But anyway, it was all just freelance stuff. And then finally, in 1973, I got a gig at WCAS in Cambridge. Uh, the CAS was Cambridge, Arlington, Somerville. Little daytime station, long gone and hard to find. But if you want to talk about some of the happiest days of my life, that would have been them. Okay, so I was teaching in the morning and then the afternoon when my teaching was done, I would drive over to WCAS in Cambridge, do my radio show. It was a folk rock station. I got to play a lot of folk rock, which was a lot of fun. And I was having a wonderful time. Didn't make a ton of bucks. Didn't matter. What mattered was just, oh, my God, my dream is finally coming true. And then one day, out of nowhere, as I remember, I get a phone call. And the phone call was from John Gorman of WMMS in Cleveland. And he was from Boston originally. 
And if I'm remembering correctly, and if I'm not, I'm sure he'll correct me because we're still in touch. He was home visiting his relatives and kind of just flipping the dial as you did back in those days. And he heard me on the air. He was at WMMS in Cleveland and he needed another female DJ because there were more openings now. Not a lot, but there were more openings for women on the radio on FM. And he gave me a call and he basically made me an offer. Never met the man and made me an offer. And I turned down tenure in the Boston Public Schools to go follow my dream and do radio, okay? Because that's where my heart was. I'd never been out of New England. I'd certainly never been to Cleveland. Had no idea what to expect. But I knew that if I didn't take this chance, I might not get another one. So off I went to Cleveland in uh, late 1973. I tried to focus on just playing the hits and playing the songs that I believed in and doing my music directing and but I ended up really feeling like the odd person out at the station. I just really felt like I didn't belong there. And they probably felt the same way. They probably, oh my God, we're expecting a hippie chick. And what did we get? You know? So it was kind of bizarre. And then a friend of mine from Canada, and this has been widely reported, so I'll just do the short version. A friend of mine from Canada sent me this record that his record label had decided not to sign. But he believed in the band. He thought they should be signed somewhere. And he sent it to me because he knew that I played a lot of imports, a lot of songs from other parts of the world. And I put, it was vinyl records. I put the needle down on the song Working Man. And I knew immediately. Now, I didn't know immediately that Rush would become a big, you know, art, big act and we'd be friends for 48. You didn't know that at all. But I knew that song was perfect for my audience. And as a music director, I'm thinking in that way, just like I was a music director at WNEU and WRBB. And I had to think about what do my college student audience members, what do they want to hear? Well, here in WMMS in Cleveland, it's a factory town. It's a working class town. Working man, I knew it would resonate with those listeners. And sure enough, it did. At the time, though, it was just, here's a great song. My audience will like this. It takes off. I help them to get some gigs in Cleveland. I help them to get a U.S. recording contract. No, I was not the person that did it, but I was certainly part of the team. And then I helped promote their music. No, I was not the only one who did it, but I kind of championed the band. And when their American version of the album came out, imagine my surprise. They dedicated it to me. And I, you know, they also dedicated their next one. And I'm in a documentary about them. And I'm in a cartoon about them. And I was on the Hollywood Walk of Fame giving them their star. And I was at the Hollywood, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Los Angeles when they were inducted. They have kept in touch with me for 40 eight years. I feel so fortunate in regard to that. I do try to say thank you to those who have advanced my career. And in many ways, as difficult as it was being in Cleveland, it advanced my career big time. If you had told me that would happen, I would have said, yeah, right. I wasn't expecting it. I was just following my dream and seeing where it led. But where it led was New York City and Washington, D.C., and then back to Boston 
and then opening up my own radio consulting business, perhaps the only woman doing that at that time. It was a four decades long career in broadcasting that all got started because a bunch of people said no to me at Northeastern and I wouldn't take no for an answer. I love your message about following your dreams and just give something a try. You never know where that's going to lead. And I know you just mentioned a 40-year career in radio. You are about to be inducted into the Mass Broadcasters Hall of Fame. Can you please tell me about the award you're about to receive and what that award represents? It represents, imagine my surprise, okay? I mean, I have this four decades long career in broadcast. And I say, anytime anybody wants to interview me, I always say two things. Thing number one, I had a really great life. I really have. I mean, I'm a working class kid from Dorchester. My family moved to Rosalindale. No one expected I'd have a career. No one expected I'd be, you know, nearly famous. No, yeah, please. I was told all kinds of stuff. There I am, hanging out with Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen drank my orange juice. He really did. I met Dolly Parton. I met Bruce Springsteen. I met Bob Seger. I met Fleetwood Mac. I mean, the number of people I met over the years, Garth Brooks. Okay, I mean, pick a genre. The chances are very good that I met them. I have memories that no one can ever take away from me. That's the good news. The bad news? I never got equal pay. I absolutely encountered sexism. I encountered a lot of people who didn't want me there, who were perfectly happy to see me fail, and who told me that I would never be successful. And yet, here I am. Now, I probably sound bitter. I'm not. I'm not bitter at all. I'm just being factual. As I said earlier, I got into the industry at a time when society was just changing. And when things are just changing, Everything is not wonderful, okay? I mean, years later, we look back on it like, oh, those were the good old days. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. I mean, I found out at one of the stations I was working at in Boston, a professional station in Boston. We're supposed to be like so liberal. This is 1980. And I find out that my male assistant is making $200 a week more than I am. And I'm his boss. And so I went into the general manager who will remain nameless. And I said to him, um, how come my assistant is making $200 a week more than I am? And I'm his boss. And the general manager said, but Donna, you're making excellent money for a woman. I'm a working person. Why am I not entitled to the pay that a guy would get? So yeah, the good news is, boy, howdy, I got to meet a lot of great people. I discovered bands. I'm known for discovering Rush. I'm delighted that I did that. But I tried to do whatever I could to help new bands get heard. That is just something I will always be grateful for. Yeah, I never got the respect that I felt I deserved, and I never got the pay that I felt I deserved. However, what happened is I opened the door for a lot of other people to walk into. And today, more women do get equal pay. More women do get equal respect. More people of color are working in the industry. It all started, not just for me. I am in no way saying, oh yeah, I personally, no, I didn't. But I was one of a group of pioneers who did this. And that leads me back to the Mass Broadcasters Hall of Fame. And I was stunned to find out I was getting an award. I really was. So what I'm getting is the Pioneer Broadcaster Award. I am the first woman, I believe, to ever win it. And it is not only for my long radio career, 
but it's for my work as a media historian. When I first got on the air at Northeastern, it was October, November, 1968. And I, I just, I wondered, like, who were my mothers? Who were the people that got on before me? Not at Northeastern, but like at other schools, at other places. Because I just wanted to like call them up. Back then, there's no internet. So I was just going to go old school and call them up and thank them. You know, like you contributed to what made it possible for me. But when I opened the books about media history back then, nothing. It was like the great man theory, you know, just like the great men who did such and such. Now, again, no problem with men. Lots of problems with prejudice. Don't like it. Don't want it in my space. And the fact that all the books had completely erased the women and the minorities who had been in broadcasting, that just seemed wrong to me. And I decided that I would find out who they were. I loved to write. I was an English major at Northeastern. I have a master's in English, English Lit. So, I mean, you know, I like to write. I get published all over the place. And fine, I'll write about them. That's what I started doing the research. And back then, it was old school. You went to the microfilm. You summoned the mic. And through doing that, I found the first woman radio announcer in the East, who was from Mattapoisett, Massachusetts, a woman named Eunice Randall who had been completely erased. She had been on the radio as early as 1919 and up through 1924. And I can pretty well document that. And I found that she had living relatives who were just, they couldn't believe it. We've been trying for years to get her story told. And I said, I will tell it, I promise you. And I will get her into the history books where she belongs. Oh, my friends, she's in there, okay? And I was on the board of directors at the Mass Broadcasters in the early days of the organization. I haven't been on it for years, but I was on it in the very early days. And I proposed her. I said, you know, she's long gone, but she deserves to be remembered because she's the mother of us all. Thanks to her niece, I had rare photos of her and et cetera. I had her writings. I even had like an old recording of one of her shows that she recreated. And I'm like, God, this is gold for a media historian. And I was able to get her inducted. That was one of the proudest moments of my life. I only wish Eunice had been alive to see it. And I'm very grateful that I could tell her story. And that's what I've spent close to four decades doing. First in the industry. And then when the industry changed and a whole bunch of us lost our jobs because of media consolidation, I reinvented myself. I um, went back to school when I was 55. It was fun going back, but it, there was quite the learning curve, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity. And these days, I'm a college professor, been at Lesley University for 15 years, but I miss radio every day of my life. And if I can't be on the radio, although I do still get on as a guest and on podcasts like this one, and I'm very grateful, but I miss being on the air every day. And it is that that the Pioneer Award is designed for, not for media historians, but for people whose careers have been kind of non-traditional, who have been involved in radio, but not like just as a DJ or just as a program director or just as a sales manager, but someone who has done something unique and unusual, like a news photographer or something like that. The Pioneer Award in my case is awarding me for the long career I had in broadcasting and being the first woman in this and that, but also for my many years as a media historian, I've written six books, many articles. I am still doing ongoing research, and there's so many stories that deserve to be told, 
And it's my commitment to keep telling them. That's incredible. Thank you for a very that. long answer. I mean, I think, I think <laughs> you're paying me by the word. Am I right? Am I doing all right here? No, this is this is great. This is great. I love hearing all about that and the work that you've done. That's so incredible being able to tell those stories that have would otherwise be lost out there. So Donna, because this is Northeastern Next, I like to ask each guest, what is next for you? Well, let me tell you, I don't know. And here's why I don't. I'm a cancer survivor, uh, eight years cancer-free by the grace of God. Every day, I am grateful to be here. I am not supposed to be here. And that's not hyperbole. My grandmother had the same kind of cancer. She was dead at 44. I'm 76, still here. So what's next for me? I'm going to stay out there as long as I can, as long as God gives me, okay? I'm going to keep teaching. I'm going to keep writing. I'm going to keep doing speaking engagements. I mean, seriously, yesterday, as, as we are taping this, yesterday, I taught three classes, did a podcast, tutored, and then went and did a speaking engagement at a historical society. It sounds like, oh my God, that's a lot. When do you sleep? The way I manage is I keep busy. So what's next for me? More writing, more teaching. There are so many stories to tell. There are so many people who deserve our attention. I'm going to find out who they are, and I'm going to give them the attention they deserve today. So whatever next is, I'm going to be ready for it for as long as I've got. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. I hope I wasn't horribly boring. I just like... No, 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 no. This is all incredible. This is all incredible. Thank you so much for joining. And thank you so much for like reaching out because as I said, being at Northeastern changed my life. I will always be grateful. listening to this episode of Northeastern Next. If this episode brought back some great memories, check out our Husky Starter page online to support current student endeavors or reach out to us via our email at alumni at northeastern.edu or on Instagram at northeastern underscore alumni to point us in the direction of a great story, either from you or a friend. And lastly, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you can hear a new episode in your feed every other Wednesday. Remember, once a husky, always a husky. See you the week after next.